0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Chapter 8 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 to 1327 by William Holden Hutton This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. England under the House of Anjou 1154-1327 The two hundred years from the accession of Stephen to the death of Edward II cover one of the most momentous periods in our annals. In 1135, England was a conquered country at the mercy of a strong king or a turbulent baronage, governed by foreigners, slowly settling down under a system of land tenure which was new and strict and oppressive. The old self-government of the English was suspended, if not destroyed, but its survivals and the influence of routine gave hope for the future the experience of the unchecked independence of hundreds of petty lords was bitter but useful. It gave strength to the sentiment of loyalty and confidence in the throne, which was the true support of Henry II, of Richard I, and of the great Edward. In 1327, England had enjoyed a self-government of a different kind, but of much greater possibilities than the early English system had ever offered the people were not only recovering the management of their own local affairs, they were obtaining control over the central government itself. The change was a great one, and it was due most of all to the action of the kings. It is impossible to exaggerate the influence of the individual character of the monarch in the 12th and 13th centuries. A strong king could often carry all before him, a weak king could lose more than all a strong king had won. The hearts of kings and their thoughts are in the hand of God, wrote a minister of Henry II, and by his judgment they stand or fall. Thus it was not for meaner persons to judge them or even to discuss their actions. This was the theory that commended itself to men's minds under a born ruler of men, It was quite different when men had a king who could not discern between good and evil. The career of Henry II, strong but wicked, finds the completest possible contrast in that of Edward II, weak but not vicious. Thus the power of the nation abroad and its internal condition also seem during this period at the mercy of the man who may be seated on the throne. But in reality, by a slow process, The work of the great kings is giving to the people the power to control the kings themselves. It is the policy of Henry II and of Edward I that makes the deposition of Edward II possible. The two centuries, then, leave the king scarcely less strong, but they place his strength more definitely in union with his people and therefore ultimately under their control. With the baronage, the case is different. The barons of Edward II, turbulent and selfish though they were, are of a different race to those who fought for Stephen or Matilda. In 1135 the barons were determined to continue as independent feudal magnates. In 1327 they had learnt that it was impossible to resist the central authority, and they therefore endeavoured to win that central authority for themselves. Besides this, they had been foreigners, ruling with a foreign king over a conquered people. They became Englishmen under a king as English as any of our sovereigns, and they felt themselves of the same race as the yeomen and the citizens beneath them. The church was the most stable institution of the period. It fought with strong kings and it coerced weak ones. It was by no means always wise or happy, but it gave England great administrators and hard-working statesmen, and it helped to win Magna Carta and the Confirmatio Cartarum. During the whole of the period it could be said that the Church was on the side of liberty, while men like Becket, Edmund Rich, Robert Grostest, and a crowd of forgotten friars helped to give Englishmen a high ideal of purity and self-sacrifice and to mould the best features of English life. The people themselves were winning new rights during this time. The system of the manner by which the Lord ruled despotically over all men dwelling on his land, whom the lawyer held to be little better than his slaves, was being gradually relaxed. The local courts of Hundred and Shire, which the tenants or villeins came to attend, conferred or recognized rights in them, which grew as time went on. The people could make oath before the king's justices, they could grant and assess taxes in the county court, and they came to vote for men who should speak for them in the national councils. But the greatest change of all was certainly in the towns. From the accession of Henry II to the death of Henry III, there is a continuous succession of charters to town bodies and corporations. The towns were organized with extraordinary complexity and completeness. The great merchants had a guild, this began as early as William I, which grew to govern all the trade in the town, and which came to ask the kings for privileges of ruling and of freedom for the city itself. Thus the charters of Henry II and Richard I were often granted to the citizens of the merchant guild. The towns won the right to collect their own dues according to their own rules and pay them in a lump sum to the treasury without the interference of the king's sheriff. Then they came to seek what towns in France were winning already, full control of all their own affairs and recognition by the state as a single unit. Thus the great towns, when they received the grant of a communa, this was general under John and Henry III, were treated as a single person and might deal, just as a great baron or bishop might, directly with the state. They won the right of choosing their own chief magistrate under richard i london was allowed to choose its mayor and lincoln its reeve and the privilege soon became common within the towns the men of each trade clustered together and held themselves close in streets which bore the names of their trades watching with special watchfulness over their own privileges thus each craft came to have its guild lads had to serve apprenticeship under a craftsman till they were free to work on their own account and at length were admitted to be master craftsmen themselves. These guilds protected the workmen and kept up the work done to a worthy standard, but they were jealous of intruders and more and more kept each trade in its own family succession. But the towns were constantly growing, and the country folk came eagerly to them to secure their full freedom and to enjoy the privilege of having their own free houses and their own work uncontrolled save by the rules of the guild. Thus the towns increased enormously during the 13th century, and it was in them that the church and especially the friars found their chief work. The wealth that came from trade showed itself in new houses and new churches. Stone houses, like the famous House of Aaron the Jew, still standing in Lincoln, began slowly to replace the cottages built of wood and wattles. Stone churches everywhere superseded the old English churches of wood they began, too, to build in a new style. St. Hugh of Lincoln, the friend of Henry II and Richard I, was one of the earliest to introduce the work that is called Early English or Pointed. In this there are long, narrow, lancet windows, pillars with clustered shafts, finely molded and decorated, and tall, pointed spires, and the churches are generally long with fine vaulted roofs. The Cathedral of Salisbury, begun in 1220 by Bishop Herbert Lepore, and finished in 1260, is a splendid specimen of this style, and we have also the choir of Lincoln Minster, and the King's Hall at Winchester, and later the Abbey of Westminster, which Henry III rebuilt over the shrine of Edward the Confessor. In the latter part of the 13th century came another change. The windows began to have tracery work in simple geometrical figures. Additionally, decoration was constantly being given to the stonework, to the pillars and the windows, both in geometrical and in flowing style, and thus we reached the period of architecture called decorated, which flourished during the greater part of the 14th century and which gave us much of the work in the cathedrals of York and Exeter and Ely. The men who built these great churches must have been both rich and religious, Thus we find the merchants recognized as a separate class, taxed separately, and holding special councils with the king under Edward I. And thus the chroniclers are full of stories which show the simple and beautiful religious faith which existed among the people at large. Church services were very well attended. The poor working people could often go to church daily, and on Saints' Days there were holidays when all men attended special thanksgivings and then held public games and entertainments. There was great reverence for special holiness of life. Many Englishmen were canonized as saints, but the people had held them for such before the Church gave them the name. Such were St. Thomas Becket, St. Hugh of Lincoln, St. Edmund Rich, St. Richard of Chichester, and men called a little boy whom they said the Jews murdered at Lincoln, St. Hugh, while some even desired to give like honor to Earl Simon de Montfort. The monasteries found employment for many who would otherwise have starved. The great religious houses scattered over Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, East Anglia, the borderlands of Wales and Scotland, and less thickly over the Midland and Southern shires, did a great work in reviving agriculture and in founding what became the chief English industry, the wool trade. Under Richard I, John, and Henry III, the wool of the Cistercians was a great part of the wealth of England. These kings seized them without scruple, and it was on the wool and wool fells, sheepskins, that Edward I placed special taxes when he was in greatest need. A new feature was added to English life by the coming of the friars, by whom the poorest people were brought nearer to the ministrations of the Church, and were also made to express their feelings as to the needs and dangers of the time. The great schools or universities in the chief monasteries, and especially in the towns of Oxford and Cambridge, grew enormously under Henry III. Even under Stephen there had been lectures in Roman law at Oxford. By the end of the thirteenth century the two universities, became the chief seats of learning in England, and brought up the men who led the religious and political thought of the day. Thus, through the greatness of her kings and their foreign possessions, through her trade and the influence of her church and her universities, England had become known as a great power in Europe. To retain this position, she depended not a little upon her military forces. At home, as has been already mentioned, the old English feared or national militia was kept up. It did good service under Stephen and under Henry II, and it was reorganized and improved by the latter king, by Henry III, and by Edward I. It remained without great alteration during the whole of this period, but it was gradually becoming connected more with police arrangements and the ordinary keeping of the peace than with active military duty. Edward I began the custom of issuing commissions of array to certain individuals, by which they were empowered to select from the national militia a certain number for special duty. These were paid by the crown. The feudal obligation to serve forty days in the Lord's cause gradually broke down under the difficulties that arose out of the constant demands of the king's foreign wars. Henry II endeavored to avoid the danger— as well as the inconvenience of calling out the whole feudal force, by taking a fixed payment, scutage, instead. He then used the money for the employment of mercenaries. But hired troops, as the only kind of standing army known, were always unpopular in England. Henry II, after 1174, never employed them again in England, and nothing so decisively turned the nation against John as the raids of his foreign hirelings. As Normandy was severed from England, the obligation to serve in the field began to sit lightly on the English barons. St. Hugh's famous refusal to pay for troops out of England was followed a century later by the refusal of the two great earls to serve themselves except where the king went. And in the latter case, the earls asserted that they served rather as officials, the marshal and constable, than as feudal barons bound by the holding of their land to military service to their lord. During this period, the English were acquiring the unquestionable sovereignty of the seas. Henry II's fleet was an important feature in the national strength. The defeat of the French suckers in 1217 by some forty ships of the sink Ports under Hubert de Burgh was the first battle in which England was saved from conquest by the courage of her seamen. The encouragement of these towns, Sandwich, Dover, Hythe, New Romney, and Hastings, was one of the chief works of the kings between 1200 and 1300. They were required to furnish ships, and they received great and special privileges in return. Though thus recognized and rewarded by the State, they were little more than nests of pirates claiming to act under royal sanction, but quite as often fighting only for their own hands. By Henry III's Shipping Ordinance of 1229, it was declared that the Sink ports and neighboring towns furnished 57 ships and 1,197 persons to man them. Edward I greatly increased the privileges of the ports, and the long sea fights of 1293, which led to a practical war with France, show the strength as well as the piracy of the half-recognized English fleet. Besides the ships of the Sinkports, Henry II, Richard I, and John did much to develop a regular English navy. Under Richard I, for the first time, England undertook a distant expedition by sea, and his fleet, was famous among those of the crusading nations for its strength and for the strict regulations under which it was placed. John appears to have been the first sovereign to give a permanent engagement to seamen, and under him the supremacy of England in the Channel was asserted more clearly than it had been claimed by previous kings. The sovereignty of the narrow seas, however, was long contested. It was admitted by the Flemings in 1320, but little practical result came from the admission. England, however, could more than hold her own in the Channel, and her fleet could keep off all invasion. Under Edward III, she was to become unquestionably supreme. Such was England, learning union within and having strength without, when Edward II ended his feeble reign. Great kings had made her great in Europe, and as yet she had gained perhaps more than she had lost by her introduction into the foreign interests which sprang from her sovereign's foreign birth and inheritance. If she was no farther advanced than some other lands in the self-government of her people, her progress had been sure, and her free institutions were more firmly based than those of France or of the Spanish kingdoms. And within— In spite of poverty on the outskirts of the towns and the hard lives of some of the half-servile poor, men as a rule lived well, and comfort greatly increased during the two centuries we have traversed. It was an era of emancipation among the poor in town and country, the population rose to nearly four millions. The growing riches of the country were seen not only in its buildings, but in the strong, substantial clothes men wore, the bright colors, the fine furs, and the costly jewels that were loved by men and women alike. Foreign connections had brought some foreign tastes, but Englishmen were able to hold their own. The church and the baronage, as well as the people of the 13th century, were strongly national, and the great King Edward I was truly a national monarch. End of chapter 8 Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, in December 2017. End of King and Baronage A.D. 1135 to 1327 by William Holden Hutton.